All right, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to two passages of Scripture. I know that shocks you. Two passages of Scripture, uh, 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1. So we're going to start in 2 Timothy 3, and then uh, we'll go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the second message in a series of three messages. Uh, the title of the series is called, How Do I Know? How Do I Know? And last weekend, I talked about how do I know there is a God. This weekend, I want to talk about how do I know the Bible is true. And next weekend will be how do I know Jesus is the only way. So today, we're going to talk about how do I know the Bible is true. I want to again recommend to you uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Uh, I'm putting his name up there so you can see how to spell it. And, um, and then his website. Um, R-Z-I-M for Ravi Zacharias International uh, Ministries dot org, R-Z-I-M dot org. And I want to recommend that, but also I want to recommend Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. So if you're a believer, if you're, and you're looking for how to answer honest questions that people do have, these are two great resources. And if you are searching for the truth, these are two great resources. So, um, I'm going to tell you how I know the Bible is true, and I'm, I'm emphasizing the word I because this first part, this first point, I have three points, but this first point is, um, uh, well, um, it'll, it'll sound a little silly, okay, if that's all right. I'm warning you, okay? All right, so here's one way. Now, I'll get into some reasoned, logical reasons in a moment. I want to tell you one way that I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, know that the Bible is true. Number one, the Bible says so. <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Okay, so again, that, that's, not, that's not going to help you if you're not a believer yet and you're searching. I'll, I'll get to that. But if you're a believer, you need to know if you believe God's Word, the Scripture tells us what it is. And when I say the word Scripture, let me say this. Jesus quoted uh, three-fourths of the Old Testament, uh, three, from three-fourths of the books of the Old Testament, okay? And He always called them the Scriptures. So from three-fourths of the books of the Old Testament, Jesus made a quote from three-fourths of those books. And He said, the Scriptures, the Scriptures. Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan, we have it recorded three times, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. That's how he defeated Satan. And so Jesus himself authenticates the scriptures by calling them the scriptures. The word scripture, by the way, means inspired by God. It is an inspired, now it's an inspired book, doesn't go into the God part, but it means inspired, inspired, all right? So let me show you these two verses. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now remember, given by inspiration of God, that phrase, because that's only one word in the Greek. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And is profitable, uh, this word means beneficial, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now remember I said that given by inspiration by God, given, that's one word in the Greek, it is theonoustos. Uh, theo means God, noustos means 
breathed, breath. Uh, it, uh, the, the root would be air of that. If you think about it, we still use that P-N-E-A-U in our own language. We'll talk about a pneumatic drill. That means one that doesn't run on electricity, it runs on air, air right? Okay, so we use that word today. So this literally means, and some versions translate it, all Scripture is God-breathed. God breathes. That's what this means, okay, from the literal Greek. Uh, now, I want you to think about this. When you speak, you breathe. When you speak, you breathe out. That's why every now and then you have to stop and take a breath. I've met a few people that seem to go forever without taking a breath, <laughs> but eventually you're going to take a breath. So you speak when you breathe, okay? So watch this, 2 Peter 1, 20, you breathe when you speak, I should say. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, knowing this first, in other words, this is a priority, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy, and again, he's referring to prophecy of scripture. Prophecy of scripture never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God spoke and men wrote what they were inspired by God to write. Now, I want you to understand, some people say, well, why is it important that it's written? Well, you actually believe in it being written maybe more than you think you do, because when you enter into a contract to buy something, you want it written. Is that right? You don't want just a verbal agreement. Matter of fact, you might even use the phrase, well, you put that in writing, right? Um, so it's important. We've had people over the years question, well, if Jesus is the word, why is the written word important? It is important that it's written, and I'll, I'll come to that a little bit later. But let me give you a, a, an example of this. Uh, there was a doctoral student that I heard about that was doing his dissertation and he disagreed with the dissertation process. And so he kind of decided to kind of make a point during his dissertation. And so he's doing his dissertation and he would make this profound statement. And then he would say, as told to me by the waiter in such and such restaurant. And he named a restaurant, you know. And then he would go a little farther and then he'd make this other profound statement. And then he would say, as told to me, by the bellman at such and such hotel. And after a little while, the professor stopped him and said, you, you, can't, you can't do this in a dissertation. Uh, you, you have to have written uh, footnotes. You have to have written documentation to prove what you're saying. You, you can't say as told to me by the waiter. And uh, the student said, uh, why? Why does it have to be written? Why is it more important if it's written than, in, than if it's verbal? And so the professor said, okay, all right, I see where you're going, proceed. So he went on with his dissertation and uh, a few months later, the professor contacted him and said, hey, I want you to know that we passed you. Uh, you're gonna be receiving your PhD, uh, but we're not gonna give it to you in writing. <laughs> he said, just take our word for it. So it's important that it's written. So uh, one way I know is 
the Bible tells me it is. So, but here's, here's a, a second way, okay, that I know the Bible's true. It's, it's amazing. It, it's amazing. And you may not know how amazing this book is. Um, just to compare, but not to uh, speak ill of other religions, but just a little comparative, uh, you know, uh, um, the, the book of Buddha are sermons by one, one man, one man. Uh, even the book of Koran, uh, that's writings by one man who were uh, compilated posthumously after he died. But again, one man. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 men over 1,500 years. And there's a single thread that runs through the whole book. It's absolutely amazing. that They, they begin writing the, the Bible in uh, about the mid-14th century B.C., continued to late 1st century A.D., so it's over 1,500 years, 40 different writers, over 1,500 years, and 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The, the collusion factor is a miracle. It's, it's a miracle that over 1,500 years, 40 different men, and it has a, a, a thread through the whole thing. That should tell us something. And then the prophecies are amazing that have already been fulfilled. Um, Isaiah and Micah wrote 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah about a virgin birth, and Micah named the city in which he would be born 700 years before. Uh, David wrote about crucifixion a thousand years before he was crucified and 500 years before anyone had ever been crucified. First person crucified we know of was in 497 BC. And David writes in 1000 BC about crucifixion and describes it and describes uh, about it. And Isaiah talks about it as well. It's amazing. Now, those are some Messianic scriptures. I'll give you one that some of you might not even know. Daniel writes 500 years BC, and he writes about an empire that is this great empire that's dom that dominates the world, and it is suddenly cut off, it says, suddenly cut off, and then it divides into four empires, and then those four divide into two, and then those two become one, and then the Messiah comes. So he writes this 500 years before Jesus. 300 years BC, you have the empire of Alexander the Great that dominated the whole world. Alexander was killed when he was 32 years old, suddenly cut off, and then his kingdom was divided among his four generals. It became four empires after that. And then those four became two empires, uh, the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic Empire, and those two became one empire, the Roman Empire, and then Jesus was born. Now explain that. That's pretty amazing. As a matter of fact, historians are confounded by Daniel's writing. They say it's just amazing that it was so accurate. It, it, it's unbelievable how accurate the Bible is. People are asking, how do we know it's true? Uh, let me just turn that around. How do you know it's not true? Well, let, me, let me say this, it'd be easy. It'd be easy to prove it's not true. It, it would talk about a city that never existed. Or it would talk about a city that was um, 
uh, 100 miles from one city, but it, would actually, it was actually 200. It, it's easy to falsify it, but you can't do it. Uh, Dr. Bruce Metzger from Princeton Theological Seminary made this statement. After you take the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, it is safe for any scholar to say that 99.6% of the Bible has been corroborated by other historical documents. You, see, you got to understand, history confirms it. Other historical documents confirm what's written in the Bible. It, it, it's, it's amazing. That's my point. It's amazing. 2,000 years since Christ has come, 3,500 years since the inscripturation process, no book has been more studied and no book has been more scrutinized, and it's always been proven true. Always. You can't falsify it. You, you can't do it. You know, Voltaire, the French uh, philosopher, died in the 18th century, in the 18, late 1700s. Uh, he said, in 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. Okay, Voltaire is dead and gone, and the French Bible Society owns his house. That's the best-selling book of all time. The, the mathematical odds, so I'm giving you some reason logic here. The mathematical odds that 66 books over 1,500 years and 40 different writers would be as congruent as these books are, they're astronomical. So, uh, Dr. Peter Scoffer, uh, a, a professor of emeritus, emeritus professor of science uh, at Edmonton University, I think. He decided to do a study. He got uh, uh, approval to do this. They did a study with 12 classes of students representing over 600 students. And they decided to study the mathematical odds of the uh, messianic prophecies. And so first they decided just to take one, and that was that he would, the, the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. They simply took the, the population of Bethlehem and the population of the world at that time, and uh, Jesus had a one in 300,000th chance of being born in Bethlehem. That's, that's the odds, one in 300,000. But after they did the study, it's amazing, because one of them said, you know, we forgot to take in into our scientific study the fact that Jesus didn't even live there. What would be the odds of him being born in a city where he doesn't live and that there would be a census that goes out and his parents travel at the exact time when she's nine months pregnant and she delivers in that city that Micah said 700 years before he would be born in? So then they also decided, because there are about 54 prophecies, messianic prophecies, you'll hear different versions. Uh, some say over 300. The best, the best way really to say is over 50 prophecies and over 300 references. That's probably the best way to say it theologically. But there are 54 messianic prophecies. So they said, well, we just, we can't calculate the odds of this. And Jesus, by the way, fulfilled them all. So what they did was they took eight of the messianic prophecies that historical documents of the day confirm and left the Bible out of it. Okay? I mean, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. There's a Roman census. He did die on the cross. And all that, so, so there are eight messianic prophecies that history tells us that Jesus fulfilled. So they decided to, to decide what are the odds that 
one person could fulfill these eight prophecies. And so they did their mathematical calculations. They submitted their findings, by the way, to the American Scientific Affiliation. And this is what it says. They verified that these calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to science. They verified it. Okay, so here's what they came up with. The mathematical odds of Jesus fulfilling simply eight, not all 54, even though he fulfilled all 54, eight of the prophecies that history says he fulfilled were one in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, let, let me show you the number. I decided to put the number up. There's the number. In other words, it's a one with 18 zeros. That, that's a 10 with 17 zeros. That's 10 to the 17th power. So a 10 with 17 zeros, so a one with 18 zeros. Okay, we don't even have a number for it. Okay, uh, uh, Forrest Gump didn't even make that much money. All right. <laughs> so, okay. So that's, those are the odds. But then they decided because it's hard to understand that. So how would they come up with an example? So, you know, one in 10 would be if you had 10 tickets and you put a mark on one, you put them in a hat, you shuffle them around and a blindfolded person went to pull out a ticket. He, he has a one in 10 chance of, of getting the ticket with the marker on it. Everyone understand one in 10. Okay, that, that's the odds, all right? So, uh, but what would be one in 10 to the 17th power? So here, here's the, the um, uh, illustration they came up with to illustrate it. Um, they said if you took silver dollar uh, coins and you stacked them side by side in the state of Texas. Now, obviously they use Texas because we're uh, the best state, you know, that's why. So, um, I don't know if you heard about the, the rancher, the Texas rancher is trying to explain how big his ranch was to a, a northerner, and he just kept, he couldn't understand, he just couldn't explain it to him. Finally, he said, let me explain it this way. If I get up when the sun comes up, and I get in my truck, and I drive all day until the sun goes down, I'm still on my ranch. And the northerner said, yeah, I used to have a truck like that. All right, so, um, okay, so Texas is large, okay, and I'm a Texan, so I'm, I, I love Texas, all right, but let me just give you a little more if you don't know. You can take Texas, if you cut it out of the map there, and if you folded it to the east, it would, the, 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 the end of it then would go into the uh, Atlantic Ocean. If you folded it to the west, that part would go into the Pacific Ocean. If you folded it south, it would go past Mexico into the Pacific Ocean. And if you fold it north, the, it almost reaches to Canada. Okay? So we, we are the biggest and best. I just want to just say that we are the biggest and we're the best. We're not bigger than Alaska, but they don't count because not many people live there. All right, so. <clears throat> I'm sorry if you're watching online in Alaska. We love you. And um, I've actually vacationed there, and I love, I love Alaska. It's just not better in Texas, but okay. So, all right. So if you took silver dollars and you put them where every silver dollar is touching another silver dollar and you covered the state of Texas, one to the 17th, uh, one in 10 to the 17th power, those silver dollars would be two feet high. That's how big that number is. And you put a mark on one of those silver dollars, 
and you put a blindfolded man in the middle of the state of Texas and tell him he can walk in any direction as far as he wants, but he has to reach down and pick up one silver dollar, that, those are his odds that he'll get the one with the mark on it. And Jesus fulfilled them all. Okay, so how can you do that? Well, this is my third question, third point, all right? Uh, I know the Bible is true, number three, because I know the author personally. I know him personally. I mean, I know him personally. I know him personally. So, uh, you do too, probably, many of you. I will say a while back, this pastor was um, uh, about going to introduce me to speak at a conference. And he said, you know, Robert, I was looking at how many of your books have made the bestseller list. And I, I, and, and I was just thinking about how, 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 do, what, how do you want me to introduce you? I said, well, you just tell them that I know the author of the bestseller of all time personally. Just tell them that. So God, this, this is the bestseller of all time, the Bible, right? Well, I, I know him personally. And if you met Jesus, you do. Now, here's the reason I say that. Okay, I've given you some scientific, logical reasoning of how we know the Bible is true. But at some point, you're going to have to take a step of faith. And it's not a leap of faith. It's just a step. Because the Bible points to a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Uh, let me read you these scriptures. John 5, 39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, the scriptures. That's what he called them, the scriptures. Because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know how we know the Bible is true? Because the Word became flesh and lived on this earth. Uh, if Jesus had been a charlatan, he could have just changed one word, and you could falsify his life. He could have said, I will rise from the dead spiritually. Now, he didn't say that, but if he had said, I'll rise from the dead spiritually, then some a scoffer might have said, well, hey, his body's still in the, in the tomb. And we'd have said, oh yeah, but he said spiritually. He'd rise from the grave spiritually. But he didn't say that. He said he would rise from the grave bodily. Bodily. And over 500 people saw him, and the historical documents of the day say he rose from the dead. They say that. You can read them. Let me tell you what. People say, well, he wasn't really dead. Oh, listen, that he was dead because a Roman soldier put a spear in his heart, and blood and water came out, and you can read a medical report of how you know that person's dead. He was dead. And he rose from the dead. And by the way, Mohammed is still in the tomb, and Buddha is still in the tomb. But after 2,000 years, archaeologists have never found his body. Never. Never. So I, I have some questions for you. And I'm going to put them on the screen, but I, I want to encourage you not to write them down right now. Just do it later. Go back and look at later. And I have the scripture that shows it, so you'll have the reference. 
But please don't, please don't write them down now because I want, I want it to impact you. All right? Here, here are my questions for you if you're wondering if the Bible is true. And if Jesus was who he said he was. Here's the first one. How did he arrange to be born in a specific family? Here's the second one. How did he arrange to be born in a specific city in which, in which his parents didn't live? Here's the third one. How did he arrange his own death? And specifically by crucifixion with two others. How did he arrange that? How did he arrange to have his executioners gamble for his clothing? How did he arrange to be betrayed in advance and to be crucified on the exact day that the Jews sacrificed a spotless lamb for their sins? How did he arrange that? How did he arrange to have the executioners carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs of the two victims on each side, but not his own? And that was prophesied a thousand years before. And here's the last question. How did he arrange to come back to life on the exact day that he said he would? Well, I have an answer for you. Because he's God. That's the only way that he could arrange all of that because he's God. He's the son of God and he died on that cross because he loves you and he wants to save you from your sin. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Sixty-six books over 1,500 years with 40 different writers What's amazing is that they are consistent with history. They are congruent with truth. And they converge in one person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something else that he arranged. He arranged for you to be in this service today. Because he loves you. And he's been drawing you to himself. As a matter of fact, some of you, he saved your life. He spared your life. Now, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. But some of you would say, I know God spared my life for a reason. I just don't know what it is. I can tell you what it is. It's so that you could give your life to him and live for him. So I want to help you. If you'd like to give your life to Jesus Christ, no matter which service you're attending, no matter, no matter which campus you're attending, or congregation, church, affiliate church, or if you're in an overflow room, no matter, no matter where you're sitting right now, you've got a stirring in you, you've got a drawing in you, that's the Holy Spirit, and you need to give your life to Jesus, I want to help you. If you need to give your life to Jesus right now, I just want to lead you in a prayer. And I want you to pray this prayer in your heart right now. And I believe you're going to mean it with all your heart. I believe, I believe you know that you're tired of playing games, tired of having one foot in the church and one foot in the world, and you know you need to give your life to Jesus. If that's you, again, I want you to pray this prayer in your heart right now. Just say, dear God, just say, dear God, I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. 
and I receive Jesus. Tell him that. I receive Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. And then I want you to say this to him. Say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me today. You know, if, if he can arrange all of those things we talked about, and he can, and he did, then he can change your life. He was just waiting for you to ask. So he heard that prayer right now. And you may feel better or you might not feel anything, but I'm telling you, if you, according to the Bible, if you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, he comes in and he, can, he saves you and forgives you of all your sins. So no one's looking around right now, no, no campus, all right? Just please, just for a moment. If you prayed that prayer and you gave your life to the Lord right now, would you just put your hand up where I can see it and where the Lord can see it? Put it way up high. Don't be embarrassed. Put it way up high. You ought to be proud to put it up. I mean, why would you be ashamed of this? This is a great decision. Put it way up high. Way up high and say, I just prayed that prayer and gave my life to the Lord. God bless you. God bless you. Hands all over. You can put your hands down. Now, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing, and this is at every campus. Every campus. In just a moment, we're going to have one more worship song. During that worship song, we're going to have leaders at the front of every campus and at the front of the overflow room, if you're in the overflow room, and by every exit, if you're at the second level at the South Lake campus. Here's what I want you to do. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Now, I'm not asking you to get up and confess in, in front of a big group of people. But in just a moment, we're going to have leaders from our church at the front of every campus and every room. And when during this worship song, there are going to be other people coming for prayer. If you have a prayer need for anything, you can come for prayer. But if you prayed that prayer and gave your life to the Lord, here's what I want you to do. I want you in just a moment, when other people are coming for prayer, I want you to come also. And I want you to just say to one of the leaders at the front of the campus you're attending, just simply say, I prayed that prayer. I gave my life to the Lord. I'm telling you, this is why it's very important. Here are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, if you'll confess me, that's with your mouth. It's important that you say it. If you'll confess me to others, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And, and really, if you prayed that prayer, you ought to be proud to do this. You ought to be happy to do this. So if you prayed that prayer and you gave your life to the Lord, when we stand in a moment, you just stand up, step out, come to one of the leaders at the front of the campus or the room where you are and tell them, I, I prayed that prayer with the pastor. I gave my life to the Lord. And if you need prayer for any area of your life, then I want you to come as well because you coming may help someone else to come to confess Jesus publicly to one person down here, all right? So as soon as we stand up, if you need prayer for any reason, or if you prayed that prayer and gave your life to the Lord, every campus, as soon as we stand up, you just stand up, step out and come, okay? Holy Spirit, I pray you'll draw every person at every campus in every overflow room that prayed that prayer right now in Jesus' name, amen.